Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. According to sources, the Mets and Jared Porter are in agreement. Porter will become the next general manager of the Mets, reporting to Sandy Alderson. A bit of an unknown quantity in this market for someone who's built up a good reputation in the game, both, both as an evaluator and a professional, talking to people who know Porter already to say, good guy, knows his stuff, prepared, knows how to evaluate players. Of course, it's a great unknown how any executive is going to fare in the unique marketplace of New York. But Porter will have a ton of support. There's Alderson to mentor him. There's Steve Cohen's resources. And there's a roster that's already close to being ready to win. So it's a good situation for Porter. He's walking into something good with the Mets, and we'll see how it goes from there. another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, December 13th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Well, welcome into another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast, uh, another hot stove edition. We just saw the winter meetings get completed, and if you don't know that virtual doesn't work, it's necessary, I guess, because of the current times, but it doesn't work. 
uh, in terms of generating the same excitement and the same buzz. Well, the virtual winter meetings proved that this week. And what was interesting, I really thought coming into today that I wouldn't have had a lot to talk about because I didn't want to speculate on James McCann and Trevor Bauer and George Springer and, and rehash the same thing. So I'm certainly not going to not do a show in the midst of the hot stove. I mean, that's what we do here. We have the holidays coming up and maybe we take a week or two off. Or, or dive in with some shorter shows in between when there's news. But I was like, you know, what am I going to do here? And I have something for you guys for the holidays, a, a kind of a look back and a special guest. And, and I have that in the can because I spoke to that particular guest earlier this week. And that will come out before the new year. But I was like, am I going to do that now in the midst of all this? And sure enough, yesterday I go out, get some lunch and – uh do a little Netflix binging in the early evening, and I get back on my Twitter feed at night, and James McCann is signed, and the Mets have a new GM, and I'm like, wow, well, that solves a lot of problems for the Sunday show. So anyway, James McCann is official. We'll talk about him. He's the new Mets catcher, and the Mets have Jared Porter as their new general manager. So uh, a couple of different things happening there in the... uh, you know, early evening of the hot stove on a very quiet hot stove week. And joining me in just a little bit is a friend of the show. He has his own podcast, and I'm sure you're listening to it. And if you're not, that's So Mets Pod with Joe DeMeo and Connor Rogers. You should be listening to it. Joe writes for SNY.TV, longtime friend of the show. And I say it every time he comes on. I usually have him on once or twice a year, usually during the draft season. But uh, he's evolved so much in the work that he's done. And uh, at PSL to Flushing is Joe DeMeo's Twitter handle. We'll be talking to him about uh, the recent moves and the big move, which, yes, it's James McCann, and we'll get to that in a minute, but let's start with Jared Porter. Now, you all know, when I went into this whole thing, it's played out exactly as I told you guys. Mets weren't going to be able to go out and get a big-name executive this late in the game We talked about the desire for a lot of these guys to come in, trash the whole thing, rebuild it, give themselves some time, ability to breathe a little bit, job security, you know, market a long-term sustainable plan. And that's just not where the Mets are at. That's not their owner. That's not this city. The Mets are not there. The Mets are a team that can win and should win something now. Not guaranteeing a World Series, but they should compete and there should be uh, an energy at City Field and energy and a coverage of this team that isn't about the next four or five years only. This shouldn't be about Double A Binghamton or Brooklyn or Syracuse. It should be about the big league club. And a lot of these guys want to come in just like a couple of years ago when Brody Van Wagenen got the job and most were telling the Wilpons, hey, I got to rebuild. Uh, and, and that was probably, not probably, was because of the financial restrictions they have. Now they have less so. They have a budget, but there's less so and they have a margin of error, and there's a different type of financial and cash flow structure to this team. So when you come in, you're coming into, yes, you're developing a long-term, sustainable, winning organization with processes and a model franchise, but in the interim, you got to win. You have money to spend to win, and you have a roster that's not barren. So it's not like you're just throwing things up against the wall. You have things to work with at the big league level. There's no reason to trash it up. And build it back up. Now, what I had said as the Mets moved away from getting those guys that Sandy will take the brunt of the responsibility. Doesn't take a genius to go out there 
and sign free agents. Anybody in the game could do that. We all know what Trevor Bauer is. We all know what McCann versus Real Muto is. George Springer. It's about getting the dollars right. It, all, it becomes an ownership situation. Anytime you get to that level of contract with Springer or Bauer, guys like that, owners are involved in those negotiations. Agents get them involved. Scott Boris does it all the time. You don't need a GM or a sustainable infrastructure to do that. So while the Mets have been working and playing in that deep end of the pool, they're trying to get their guy. I had also said to everybody that right now, as Steve Cohen came in, the Mets are very similar to the Red Sox, more so the Red Sox than the Cubs, but the Red Sox back when Dan Duquette had built up that team. You know, they had some good teams in the late 90s, 98, 99, 2000, you know, 2001, that just could not get over the hump, maybe underachieved, obviously had the Yankees dynasty in front of them. The Yankees were like their white whale. And the fan base was just waiting for the roof to cave in on them. I remember going, and I said this story before going to a tour of Fenway Park right around 2000. And the whole tour was not just about how beautiful and how much history the ballpark had, but it was the curse of Babe Ruth and how the retired numbers came out to 86 years and 1986, whatever it was. I can't remember quite everything they said. But it was a fan base that reveled in feeling sorry for itself. But it had a beautiful ballpark. It was a city that everybody was united around one sports team. It's a city that I've been jealous of. I'll be honest with you. I wish we could have some of what Boston has here. But it's a smaller town, you know, so you, 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 know, you can't. You have to have some kind of variation of it. And then Theo Epstein comes in, and then the 2004 season happens, and then they become the model franchise as they not only win a World Series, but they do what the Mets have not been able to do in a very, very long time. They did a little bit of that in the 80s. And, with, you know, they just didn't come. They didn't have a wild card. They, didn't be, they weren't able to get to the next World Series, the next World Championship. But they've really never done in their history when they've had that moment, 69, 86, 2000, 2006, 2015, whatever season where they had that moment, even though they fell short. Can they use that to catapult and go into a sustainable winning year-in and year-out title talk? And Theo Epstein was able to do that, and he was able to repeat in 07, and then he left, and those who left, he left behind, were able to kind of, on the fly with some free agents, win again in 13, and then rebuild the team again and win in 2018, and over the last 15 to 20 years, they're a model franchise. Now, things have changed over there, and they're in a different, you know, period maybe maybe they're looking to be more Astros Cubs but historic ballpark thirsty fan base same thing that Theo did in Chicago and I know they say he tore it down but I think he was an inert for a couple of years it wasn't the Houston teardown so Jared Porter was there Jared Porter was an intern when that was going on and what impressed me about Jared Porter so you had Zach Scott who's with the Red Sox you had Jared Porter as a potential candidate, you had Billy Owens of the A's and Michael Hill, who spent a lot of time in Miami uh, and just recently worked under Derek Jeter and uh, has experience. But there was nothing about his resume that really rang true to me that excited me. What I always said about anybody I want who who's going to come in, I want them to take on the challenge. I want them to understand the fan base. I want them to understand that, yes, you can build and you can build a long-term uh, 
infrastructure of, of success. Yes, you can build a farm system, but you got to win now. You can't just snake oil sales this fan base. Not now, not this time. Maybe a decade from now, after you've had a little bit of a run, whether you win a title or not, and things go bad, maybe you could give them a, a, a pitch of stepping back, but not now. And I need someone who's played the game, understands the game, understands more than the numbers. And the two guys that really, and Billy Owens played at a higher level in the minor leagues, but Jared Porter played some college ball. He actually played uh, hockey too. And Billy Owens, who played in the minor leagues before he got into the Oakland front office, those two guys fit the combo of player working under a all-time Hall of Fame exec, uh, working in an organization that was innovative and had to do more with less. Sometimes, not so much the Sox, but the A's. And they were able to work their way up through the system. And what's really impressive about Jared Porter is here's a guy that interned. And interning in sports stinks. No money, long hours, a lot of promises. Hot, just like ball players who get signed, who are not blue chippers. High chance of never going anywhere and spending all this time learning values and sweat equity, but not really lining your pockets at a, at a time in your life when you're developing, you want to start a family maybe, you want to grow, you, you know, you're not going out and, and having the luxuries that a lot of maybe some of your friends who got corporate jobs around the same time uh, have. But here's a guy that would put in a 10, 12-hour day doing grunt work, sometimes just driving people around, and Jared Porter then go out to look at a Gulf Coast League game or a high A or low A game to scout and to learn. And he's worked his way specifically up through the scouting ranks in these organizations and understanding what went into winning in Boston and then going over to Chicago on the right after everything was built, but seeing how they not only uh, capitalized on an opportunity but tried to push forward. These are things that will be very valuable and very transferable to this Mets situation. He has a respect for analytics. There's a great podcast on the executive access by MLB.com's Mark Feinson, former Yankees beat reporter. You have to listen to it. I've tweeted it out at Mike Silva Media, the exact uh, information. You have to listen to it because you really get to hear what Jared Porter's all about, about his journey, about what he thinks about analytics. Here's a guy that knows that analytics are important. He even said scouting used to be 90% of the decision-making. It's 30% now. I personally think that's low. But he said even at 30%, it's so important to have that component, to understand those players. And in an environment where so many people feel from a cost perspective and because they're able to crunch so many numbers and look at video and remotely do all the things that used to be done on the backfields or in some bodung town in the United States – they could do it from their house. You can't. You need to understand what these guys are all about. You have to understand their background. You have to understand how they handle success or failure. There is no way that you can just go and make every decision based on analytics. I'll tell you what. We'll get to James McCann after the break. I don't think James McCann was just about pitch framing. I'm sure and I hope that there was more go going into that decision, more learning about him. Because with the limited information we had, we learned a little bit just talking to people about James McCann right here on this show and our friend Rich Mancusa, who had spoken to Gio Gonzalez. What a testimonial from a pitcher. So there's a lot more to that. Porter talked about the next frontier of analytics, about medical. 
we've always well it's about innings and we look at all these innings and 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 things that are outcome stats and just assume well you can't go above a certain amount of innings or you'll get hurt well there's a lot more to everybody's body than the innings they pitch mark Pryor got hurt for a reason zach wheeler got hurt for a reason matt harvey got hurt for a reason jacob Degrom, who uh, had tommy john surgery but has been lucky for the most part not to break down in the big leagues did not for another reason. And it's not just because of how he was treated with innings. It's body type. It's mechanics. There's so much more. And it looks like that's something that he wants to look into. He's a guy that was involved in looking for, and this is the big part, undervalued assets within the Red Sox organization. Daniel Nava, Rich Hill, he was involved in that signing. And the Mets have money now. But like any big league team, the Mets at one point before the Madoff situation the Wilpons were spending. You look at the Mets rosters in 06, 07, 08, all before the whole Madoff thing. It wasn't about the Mets spending money. They were top five in payroll back then. It was about they couldn't go the extra mile when they had that nine or ten really elite num- members of their roster. Those other 15 spots in the roster, they were kind of picking and choosing where to shave off. So you would get, when there was injuries, a Ricky Lede in the outfield. Or you would get... Tony Armas Jr. making a start, or you didn't have a starter down the stretch in 07 because you didn't have any depth in the minor leagues because you didn't have any kind of structure set up to build or to invest in scouting, analytics, development, international, whatever. You have that money now, but you have a guy that understands the importance of that because it's not long-term. In the short term, yeah, getting Trevor Bauer, getting George Springer, getting a McCann going out there and plugging holes through free agency by bringing in Trevor May on a two-year deal. But wouldn't it be great if the Mets were able to get their own Trevor May and not have to spend 15 or $16 million? I mean, it's a bullpen. At some point, you got to develop something. Hopefully, he understands that, and he can collaborate and understands learning under Theo Epstein. A whole, that's a Hall of Fame executive. Look, I, nothing against Sandy Alderson. I'm sure because he's been in a lot of different baseball situations he is considered a hall of fame exec but epstein is an iconic exec he broke two curses he built two organizations he took a concept by bill james and something that billy bean pioneered and he really brought it to the next level and this guy was there and he understands the human element and he has that scouting sweat equity that i think is important you know you look at zach scott's resume i went on linkedin it's all analysis he comes from the financial industry all the way back to the late 90s. Nothing against him, because he's around the Red Sox during the same time, but that's a different guy. That's not the guy I want. I want the guy that has that blend, and he's going to be involved with Sandy. Sandy could probably mitigate some of the pressure at the beginning. He's a fresh face. Everybody continues to talk about, well, when are the Mets going to get Epstein and bring in a big-name exec? At some point, everybody was a nobody, just like with the whole manager situation. Everybody was a nobody at some point. It's about time we build as a, as a, as a franchise, I would say. We, I mean, we, I mean, what Sandy would say, not me. The, the Mets build the next nice run, the next big-time executive that comes out of the Mets, not the Mets acquiring somebody who maybe just wants a paycheck on the way out. And that's really weird. I, 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 you don't know how this is going to work out. Like I said, you throw a blanket over some of these guys and pull the name out of a hat or whatever it is. They're all the same. Well, it, it turns out maybe they're not because if you really get nuanced and we don't have access 
to interviews and every little bit of information. There's a lot there to like. I mean, there's a lot there that it differentiates. Just looking at the backgrounds of a Zach Scott and a Porter and, the, and Billy Owens and Michael Hill, there is some nuances. And you have to hope that my, Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson understand that. I'm sure they do. And that they did, did due diligence. I'm sure they did. And that they now have their guy. And a guy that's on board with winning and building at the same time. And understanding the importance of what it is to win in this town and how special it would be where he can do in a lot of ways. If the Mets can win a title, he can be in this town where Theo Epstein was in Boston, where Theo Epstein was in Chicago. And maybe five, ten years from now, there are teams when you're always going to move on and get stale at some point. There are teams that say, I want to be like the Mets. I want to be like Jared Porter. Maybe that'll be the case. So we'll learn more about Jared Porter. We'll learn more and get thoughts about Jared Porter from Joe DeMeo, our friend from SNY.TV, formerly Mets blog over there, doing uh, Mets content, covering the minor leagues. That's so Mets pod. We'll learn more from him in a little bit. But before that, let's take a quick break. When we return, James McCann is the new Mets catcher. Is he a lot like the old Mets catcher with a little bit better defense? He is risky because they didn't go to the top of the market. The Mets decided to skimp a little bit here. Hopefully that leads to some bigger and better things later in the winter. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. This is a really good signing for the Mets. Four years, $40 million for James McCann is reasonable. It takes care of one of the most important positions on the field. And the thing that teams prize most at this position, that is guiding a pitching staff, directing a game. McCann is very close to elite. He has made himself into one of the prototypes for what teams are looking for at that position. He has done this through a relentless work ethic and attention to detail. He picked the brain of his Detroit manager, Brad Osmus, a three-time Gold Glove winner at the position, and continued to get better during his two seasons with the White Sox. Osmus drilled into McCann that his job is to put the pitcher into a position in which he can get into a rhythm of simply getting the sign and executing the pitch. No fretting about the call, no second-guessing. The thing James McCann's teammates say about him is that he might just be the most prepared, most conscientious player on whatever team he's on. As Don Cooper, the legendary former White Sox pitching coach, wrote in a text message to a reporter on Saturday, prepared guy, works well with staff, interested in improving his game, that is pitch framing, solid teammate quality person. Can't ask for much more of a recommendation than that. White Sox teammates say it was common to see McCann on team flights, breaking down numbers, analyzing opponents hitting and base running tendencies as he prepared for the next game. Those things are invaluable in the long run. And on top of that, McCann had an 808 OPS the last two seasons. In short, solid, solid next step for the Mets. All right, we're back. So the first, well, not really the first free agent domino, but the first significant, I don't know if I'd call Trevor May significant, important free agent, but this was, McCann was put in with the Springer, the Bauer names, the Real Muto names. So uh, the first domino dropped here. And let's see what this leads to. So the Mets now have their catcher, a position that has been a big problem for a long, long, long time. 
a revolving door. They thought they had their guy of the future with Travis Darno. And what's ironic is when you look at James McCann on baseball reference and you look at who are similar type of players with their comps, Darno is the first name that comes up. And I know there's been, and we've done a podcast and we've talked about this, about the Mets giving up on Darno uh, when Brody Van Wagenen was the GM. And personally, Darno is a great guy. I've met him. I've told you guys this. Uh, really great guy. Don't know if he's a New York guy. Don't know if it ever would have worked out here. I think there was a lot of water under the bridge. I think coming back from Tommy John's surgery, struggling very uh, obviously, not only with the bat behind the plate those first couple of weeks when he came back in 2019, a team in the in a win-now mode, a front office that didn't trade for him. And at that point, you were kind of like, hey, you know, you got Ramos for a couple of years. I think they had their sights set on Real Muto all along. And I think if Brody Van Wagenen was still the GM, uh, I have a feeling he would want to go after he would want to go after Real Muto. But be that as it may, Darno went on to Tampa, a different market, Atlanta, different market, different expectations. And he, he's had the same kind of bat that in twenty fifteen when he was healthy. Uh, when he came back from injury, that he could produce. He just went through so many long periods of bad bat. And even with his improved bat, let's say he sustained the bat that we've seen in Atlanta and Tampa over the last year, year and a half, uh, he's still not good defensively, in my opinion, to the level where it could justify uh, the valleys that you'll see or or the bat. I mean, if, you, if you're going to have a bat that is good uh, – but have such poor defense, it almost undoes everything. You're better off sacrificing some offense for defense behind the plate unless you are Mike Piazza. That's that's where, you know, that that's a guy that, you know, he's a middle of the line of bitter. He's in a hall he's a Hall of Famer. And for all the and I've talked to Piazza on the show about this and I've spoken to him too at times as we prepped for the show right before we came on and I said to Mike, I said you were known as a good game caller. You were known as a guy who could block the plate. You couldn't throw runners out. Uh, some of that had to do with health and injury. Some of that may, you know, was just the situation where there were limitations to his defensive game. But game calling and the pitcher's responsibility of holding that runner on to give a guy that may not have uh, throwing runners out as a strength is as much the, the responsibility of the pitcher as the catcher. And at times, to be fair to whoever has been a receiver with the Mets... The pitchers have done an awful job. Syndergaard, DeGrom, Harvey. Not, many of them don't hold runners on well. So you're coming into a situation where the Mets needed somebody, not just to throw runners out. And I myself have also been focused on framing. But it was nice to hear that one of the things that has really, uh, and it's a focus of Jared Porter, but it's something I've talked about many, many times on this show, is how can a catcher call a game? I think at times, even with uh, Edwin Diaz, I wasn't sure if the right pitch was being called in the right situation, which led to some of his struggles in 2019. And that's on the catcher. Now, I know that the dugouts called pitches. I remember when Darno was here, he would be looking over to the dugout, uh, looking for Dan Worthen's next uh, pitch call. See, I don't, I don't think that's what this should be about. You need to have a catcher that knows and understands his, his pitcher, understands the opposing team's lineups, studies them, and understands the nuances so that he can guide his pitcher. Obviously, the pitcher has the final call. He could shake him off, but he could guide his pitcher and navigate through a ball game. And it sounds like McCann can do those things. 
I'm more interested in what pitchers think of a catcher than some rival executive who tells a newspaper, well, it's an overpay. They should have get real Muto. And, uh, you know, they talk about the framing. I could see the framing stats on fan graphs. I could see the framing stats on baseball savant. I could see that too. What I can't see and what I don't know is like what Rich Mancuso, who came on our, our program a few weeks back, uh, told us, Rich Mancuso of MetsamorizedOnline.com, that when he spoke to Gio Gonzalez, Gio said this is a great guy to throw to. He loved throwing to him and, and, and wax poetic and, and a, a young White Sox staff that did very well. And if you remember, the Mets, as their staff, as a young staff developed, they never developed all these guys, I felt, except for DeGrom, and maximized who they were. And I blame the pitching coach a lot. And I still blame the pitching coach because I didn't think Dan Wortham was all that great of a pitching coach. But you also have to remember Darno was part of that. And maybe if you had a real savvy veteran catcher, maybe some things would be different. So the Mets seem to have believed it was better to scale back on the catching position. I showed, you know, I shared my concerns about Real Muto, age of 30, hip injuries, uh, expensive contract that could have a lot of dead money on the back end, may need time off at first base or that kind of position uh, to give him a breather on a Sunday or, you know, when he's having some physical breakdowns. Mets don't have that luxury. They have two first basemen already. They probably will have the DH, but let's face it, even if they have the DH, you've got two first basemen that need that position. And as good of a hitter as Real Muto is, the value of his offense is he's a catcher, so it gives you an advantage there. And it's really all about his defense. And he's certainly the better player, and he has all those same leadership qualities from what I understand, as, as McCann probably more. Now, we don't know what's going to happen here. When you look at McCann's advanced offensive numbers, take the defense, which is more anecdotal. Yeah, we can see the framing numbers, but he's also had bad defensive metrics. All the defensive accolades are anecdotal. They're all based on word of mouth. And sometimes, and not sometimes, a lot of times you have to go by that because you and I can't make decisions in a vacuum not knowing what people who have worked with him have thrown to him believe in this guy. Um, but from an offensive standpoint, because if he can give you, and I don't believe he's as good as his limited offensive output. I mean, he was all-star, Hall of Fame level year in small sample size in 2020 in a pandemic shortened season against a modified schedule. Let's remember, you're not seeing the usual schedule you're seeing. So it's a lot you have to throw out with 2020 stats. But even if you go by what Wilson Ramos gave you, you know, 15 home runs, 65, 70 RBIs, you know, 270. He's probably not going to give you the same batting average as Ramos. Ramos was able to kind of spray the ball a little bit, but gives you kind of the same slightly above league average offense behind the plate with a much elevated defensive presence where he can call a better game. He can work with the pitchers better. We know there were issues with the pitchers, Syndergaard mainly with Ramos, can throw runners out, can block pitches, can give the pitchers confidence to throw tough breaking balls with runners on base, because I don't think Ramos was a guy that you could trust. He's a runner on third, a base is loaded, and, and two outs. Do you trust that he's going to block everything? Because I didn't. Ramos, I thought, was adequate in 2019, below average, but I didn't think he was a killer. Last year, it was clear Ramos was a killer, and he got worse. 
and uh, the Mets needed to upgrade on this. Now, you gave the guy four years and $10 million, which is essentially what Darno, not years-wise, Darno's getting about $8 million bucks from Atlanta. And you keep going back, well, couldn't you just kept Darno? I still think this guy's better. I still think when I look at it that the plan that I see is that they have an 18-year-old catcher down in the minor leagues that in about three years should be ready. And by that time, McCann, who's going to be 31 in the middle of the season, probably will start to decline, uh, probably won't look as attractive from a cost perspective, and maybe the guy to mentor Alvarez is the next coming. That's probably the best laid plans. Now, will Alvarez ever see City Field? Will he ever see a big league ballpark? I don't know, but there's a lot of buzz about him. He's got some good minor league numbers. I don't know how uh, on the alternate site uh, you could evaluate from our perspective because we didn't see him, and I think it's hard for even for big league clubs. So this is a transition guy during a time where they want to win, where they could get to the guy that is the heir apparent, and uh, and and hopefully he can be that bridge of uh, you know bridge that gap. Now where can this go bad? It can, and I'll tell you real quick. First off, Real Muto resigns with Philadelphia, goes to Washington, and has a bang up three or four years at a not a crazy contract like what he initially got, but let's say he gets. Four years, a hundred million, something like that, maybe one twenty, and all of a sudden McCann flops, and it's a glaring weakness. All the things about him as a defensive catcher don't really pan out, and he's really bad, or he goes back to Detroit bad on offense. Because let's remember, most of the offensive numbers—strikeout rate, walk rate, everything you see—batting average on balls in play was insanely high in Chicago. Now that could be part of his process, understanding how to hit the ball. Uh, the right pitch hit the ball with authority, hit his pitch. There's a lot of reasons why that could be. It's not just luck. I don't believe in that. But there's a lot of similar type of secondary metrics offensively that were in Chicago that existed in Detroit. His results were better. So we won't know until we see it. He's probably somewhere in between. And if he gives you pomp and he gives you really good defense and leadership, I'll take it behind the plate because that's what you need behind the plate. But it could go bad. And right there in your division, 18, 19 times a year, this guy's killing you. And he's not making that much more than McCann in terms of what the investment could be. It wasn't a, if it's not a crazy contract, a stupid contract, then you know you may have a problem. And if he does sign for one year, a pillow contract, you may have to question yourself at that point. But I think the Mets knew that if they took a risk, passed on McCann, and he went to you know Anaheim, and they went after Real Muto and lost, or the bidding got crazy, the, the next drop off was significant. And that has to do with the fact that they really don't have, uh, you know, somebody in their system. You know, I think Tomas Nito could be an everyday player in a good lineup. Uh, I don't know how defensively if he's as good as people make him out to be, but I don't know if they wanted to take that risk. I think they wanted a veteran, and I don't blame them on that. So remember, this can go bad. This can be a problem. This does not come without risk. And I'll especially say this. If they do not go out and land two of the three big stars out there, Springer, well, now it's really two, two of two, because Real Muto's out of the equation. Bauer and Springer, and I know Bob Klappish said there's some debate with Cohen and Sandy Alderson about which one is better to go for. I think they should go after both, within reason. And I think they should be in on both. But right now you wonder if Bauer is leaning more towards California. He's from California. He's waxing poetic about the Angels fans. Springer seems a fait accompli, but I never believed you know, those fait accompli free agents' uh, narratives. Very rarely do they always go that way. It's always more in-depth than that. So uh, if they don't land 
both those guys, if they don't land either of them, this becomes, like Joel Sherman wrote about, mastering the second tier, which is fine, but the second tier is a second tier for a reason, and those guys could then start to get, you know, B guys getting B plus A money, then you're going back to some of the same problems you've seen in the past where the Mets shop in the second tier, give them maybe better money than they really deserve to dominate that tier, and you expect results that are not necessarily realistic for those players. Still a very good class, still would put together a solid team, but I think you have a chance to really go into the deep end of the pool and do something special. And hopefully this McCann signing, going for the lesser of the names in this category at this position, uh, yields to some big stuff later in the offseason. Maybe as early as as you're listening to this podcast. Who knows? Maybe these dominoes falling, getting a GM, maybe this is a big deal. And maybe by the time you listen to this, maybe George Springer and Bauer are Mets. I don't think so, but we'll see. Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Joe DeMeo, That's So Mets Pod, SNY.TV. Let's hear his thoughts on Jared Porter. Let's hear his thoughts on James McCann, what he thinks the Mets are going to do this offseason. And he wrote a nice piece over at SNY.TV about minor league baseball in a season without minor league baseball. So let's get into that and more right after this. I talked to somebody who worked in a, fr- in a front office with Porter for a few years, and he's very high on the Mets' choice uh, of Jared Porter for GM, and rightfully so. The, the, the most interesting thing this guy said to me is that Porter is an organization above oneself type. And I took that to mean, uh, I thought it was very interesting because we're in an era now where GMs can be stars. And, you know, there are some one-name GM types out there. Uh, you know, Theo doesn't work for the Cubs anymore, but we all know who Theo Epstein is just when you say Theo. And to me, the idea that, that, that Porter is more of an organizational-type first guy uh, indicates good things for the Mets to me because he's not looking to be the star of the show. Uh, I mean, he's not even the president of baseball operations, although that seems to be what will come next as Sandy Alderson sort of grooms him for that job. I think he'll, he's only 41 years old. He'll develop under Sandy. Uh, the person I spoke to also said that Porter's got some strong leadership skills and he loves his pro scouting background. He's a very strong talent evaluator. And I think that's all going to fit in very nicely with the front office that the Mets are creating. And because he's worked for a couple of different teams and had some high-level success, as you noted, uh, he's got a big uh, pond from which to draw when he hires guys uh, to fill out the rest of the Mets front office. We're back and joining me. You guys know him, SNY.TV, That's So Mets Pod, at PSL to Flushing. Joe DeMeo, you can check out his podcast with Connor Rogers, That's So Mets Pod. He was kind enough to come join me on this humble podcast. And Joe, uh, like I was telling you before we got in, uh, you and I were texting yesterday early afternoon, and we're trying to figure out, let's do a segment on the Mets GM search. So we got these four names. I'm starting to do preparation, listening to podcasts, reading up. Jared Porter was the first one. I said, oh, let me just do Jared Porter first. Three hours later, they just made our lives exponentially easier, the Mets. Jared Porter's the new GM. James McCann's the new catcher. How you doing? And uh, a new era continues to evolve in Mets baseball. I'm doing great. And, yeah, it's definitely uh, pretty exciting that they were able to pull off the catcher and the GM while Steve Cohen is handing out bobbleheads. How how they pull that off? <laughs> how they pull that, that. all that off at once? And 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 not only that, A-Rod comes out and basically says the Mets were going to be one big 
recording studio for J-Lo on, a, on another podcast. So the fans saw what could have been with A-Rod. So quite a day of what is and what could have been for Mets fans. Much different than you. You and I have been talking, like I always say, for what, 15 years now? This is probably the, uh, other than 06, which was the summer of love, if you remember, right? Nothing went wrong back then uh, until the playoffs. This has been like the best period that I can remember without any drama, with so much positivity. I mean, can you remember another time with so much positivity around the team? No, I can't. Like you said, 06 was really the the prime. 05 and 06, really. So 05, even though, you know, they just finished, what, 500 or a game over or whatever it was, you know, fans were super into the 05 team. And then the 06 team took it to the next level. Uh, 2015, the world's, you know, once they got Cespedes, that was a very exciting run where fans got into it. But no, uh, across the board, and maybe it's even fans are too optimistic now because, you know, I look at my Twitter mentions and everyone I put out last night just for fun. You know, what do you think's next after James McCann? And I can't tell you how many people said Springer, Bauer and Lindor, uh, Springer, Bauer and Arenado. And, you know, we could pump the brakes a little bit, but no, Mets fans are incredibly excited. Steve Cohen is playing all of his cards right out the gate. And, you know, they're so far off to seemingly a pretty solid start. And I appreciate how Sandy Alderson, I keep bringing up this quote on That's So Mets podcast, that the Mets are going to focus on the acquisition, not the cost, which is such a drastic change from what the Wilpons did. And under Wilpon's ownership, it was literally almost to the penny that had the matchup right financially. And under Steve Cohen, doesn't mean you're going to be reckless with money, but if it takes a couple million dollars more a year, or maybe it takes an extra year, then if it's a guy you really want, you go ahead and do it. And let's oh, just start there, because before we get to Porter, let's start there, because James McCann is uh, the first I mean, Trevor May was the first acquisition, but now you're getting into the the meat and potatoes here, James McCannon. Coming into this segment, we had the Richard Justice audio from MLB.com, waxing poetic about what a, a student of the game he is. Uh, decent hitter has made himself into a decent hitter, working under the tutelage of Brad Ausmus in Detroit, who was a great defensive catcher, understands how to you know get pitchers to get into a rhythm, understands analytics. And when you talk about not focusing on the cost, this is a bit expensive. And this, let me throw a little cold water here with McCann. And I said this in the, in one of my segments in the open, if real Muto either signs a short-term pillow contract or his market collapses to where you go in about 25 million a year for three or four years, this might not look that great because real Muto is a better player, just as much leadership, just as much intangibles, way better hitter. I'm still worried about the hip. And I understand that if he needs time off or he can't catch, the position he would play for his base is not open, as well as DH, assuming there's a DH. So this is a good move. It's maybe an overpay. It shows you where the current Mets are, but it does not come without risks. I like the move, but I hope this move leads to Bauer Springer of that ilk. Because if it doesn't, and like Joel Sherman said, it's the second tier that the Mets start dominating – I'm not as excited about it. Then I'd rather go for Real Muto. Your thoughts? Totally agree. So I, I'm actually, I didn't really want Real Muto just because of what the contract demands were. And I wasn't really prepared to wait him out to see if it falls, you know, into the Mets laps. Because by that, by time then, 
McCann's going to sign somewhere else. Uh, Yadier Molina is going to go back to St. Louis. And then you would be kind of painted into a corner where you had to give Real Muto whatever it was necessary to sign him. Otherwise, you have nothing at catcher. So I think what the Mets, I think this is just an overall picture move. I don't think in a vacuum, the James McCann move, I'm not, you know, crazy excited about it just as it is. I think it's a high risk move. There is upside. You know, he made changes to his swing, his batting stance, his hard hit rate, his barrel rate, all that stuff, his line drive rate. So he's hitting the ball more in the air and hitting it harder consistently the last two years. His pitch framing statistics have taken a big step forward because he was a bad pitch framer in Detroit. So he made some changes uh, with the White Sox, and I think that helped him. But there is risk that it's still only a 150-game sample size, and you might be getting a, at best, league average catcher. But the, the overall point is they had to fill catcher, and if they didn't do it now, who knows who they could have gotten later. And it has to be a big-picture move, exactly like you said. If this doesn't lead to a Springer or a Bauer, or even if they decide they go to trade route and go for someone like a Nolan Arenado, there has to be some star player that's brought in. Otherwise, the McCann deal doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, Joe DeMeo, that's some it's pod at SMY dot, you know, SMY.TV. You can check out his work there at PSL to Flushing. Good thing they, they didn't contract Port St. Lucie or else he'd have to change his uh, handle. Joe is probably waiting with a bated breath over there. Joe, I, I personally, and again, I know everybody wants to hear about Jared Porter, and I promise everybody will get to that. But it's but we started on the, the mindset. I personally don't think they're set up for trades. I know fans here, Lindor and Arenado. Um but I don't think they're set up for that. I don't think they have the depth, unless these are straight salary dumps. I've heard Arenado's a West Coast guy, would prefer to stay out there. So who the, who the heck knows if you require him where that goes? You have to be ready to give up guys like Jimenez, McNeil. You've got to have a painful trade to get Arenado. You have to have a painful trade to get rid of Lindor. Fans are not ready for that. They think these are just salary dumps for money. They are not going to be. I know the leverage situation. But if you think either of those teams are going to dump those guys – Without there being pain going the other way, you're kidding yourself. No, I agree. It, it's not going to be cheap to acquire them. I think Arenado, if he's moved, I think you'd be surprised at what that return ends up being because he has mega money owed to him if he doesn't opt out. And frankly, in the climate that we're in, I think he'd be mm. foolish to opt out of that deal. Because I agree. He'd be I walking agree. away from $35 million a year for the next what four or five years after this year so you know that's a big money that's a big money move so it it certainly would be a risk I I agree with you that I think it's much more likely they go the free agent route and frankly I'm under the idea I think George Springer is going to be a New York Met I don't know when it's going to be but I think they're all in on George Springer Um, I don't really want them to be all in on Trevor Bauer I'm I'm not excited by Trevor Bauer. I I understand he had a tremendous year uh, in the shortened season. And 2018, he had a really good year too. But outside of that, his ERA for most of his career is in the fours. And he's getting paid, he's going to get paid like an ace level pitcher. Part, he won the Cy Young just now. And also because he is, without a doubt, the best pitcher on the market. So that just leads to more money. And to me, I think if you went to Trevor Bauer and it wasn't that one year big money deal that he originally talked about and has since backtracked on, 
if it's not the one-year deal, I think a four or five-year deal for Trevor Bauer will blow up in the Mets' face. To me, of the big three free agents, obviously Real Muto's out now with McCann, but Springer was and is the safest investment that a team can make. I think he he kind of reminds me of a better version of when the Mets signed Curtis Granderson. I think hmm. he can make I think he can make a very big impact in the clubhouse. He's a big time leader. He does big time stuff off the field. He actually grew up with uh, a big time stutter and does a bunch of charitable things for uh, kids with stuttering issues. Play center field at an above average rate now will translate to a corner where he'll be very, very good, maybe in the last year to two years of the deal. So to me, a five-year deal in the, let's call it $125 million range for George Springer is the move to do. That's interesting. The Granderson comparison is interesting. Uh, and Granderson came a lot cheaper because he was coming off of an injury plague down yeah. year at that point. But that's interesting. Uh, you wouldn't be disappointed if it was Springer and then they went very value-driven. Tiwan Walker, uh, Paxton, uh, I don't know if Tanaka and Odorizzi fall into that. I feel like because they went the McCann route, within reason, you go after Bauer. If Bauer gets Patrick Corbin money, is that really ace money by today's standards, though, Joe? Six years? I went, I did the Granke contract, uh, Lester contract. I know those guys are considered aces, but those are that's that that's the kind of bandwidth he's in. Now you could argue he's Zach Wheeler, but he's not going to sign for Zach Wheeler money for the same length of years. Maybe for shorter term, he'll sign for twenty five a year. But um, you you don't see that as being reasonable. I'm not. He's not coal. I'm not expecting him to get yeah, coal sure. money. But 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 between a floor of Wheeler and a high of Grinky Corbin, you know, this, unless this gets to David Price Scherzer. I don't see why that's unreasonable. Is that is that by the today's standards and who he is, even before this year, is that unreasonable uh, in terms of a contract? No, I, I don't think it's unreasonable. It's just I know that the Mets are only going to get one of them, and I prefer to make a safer investment. And I think there's risk with Bauer. Can you imagine? So you don't think signing? they could get both? You don't think both? I are... do not. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I think so. The Mets are right now about fifty-three million dollars from the luxury tax, so. Springer and Bauer, let's just call them for just to put a round number on it, around 25 a year. You're at the luxury tax and you didn't fill any depth at all. You didn't grab any starting pitching depth, any more bullpen depth, any outfield depth. They only have three outfielders on the 40 man roster. So mm-hmm. it would be four with Springer at that point, but you would have no outfield depth. So they'd be in a, they'd be in a tough spot depth wise. And frankly, another thing that I want to bring up, and I did bring it up on on my podcast, is the draft pick compensation. And I mentioned this on Twitter and had people go nuts on me. Like, (laughs) you mean to tell me Trevor Bauer's not worth a third-round pick? But the reality of how the draft works is you get a bonus pool for your entire draft. And you stay within that bonus pool or, you know, you could go a little over and get taxed, which the Mets have done the last couple of years. But if you lose a draft pick as compensation for a player, for signing a player, you not only lose that draft pick, but you lose that bonus amount from your pool. So you have less money to spend in the draft. And Sandy has made it abundantly clear. And Steve Cohen even did too, that building up a farm system to make a sustainable contender is imperative. And 
I think if you go and sign two of these guys, you're basically trashing your 2021 draft right out the right. gate. Right. And, and to, me, to me, that's not the best use of funds. And ultimately, you also have to look ahead, too, because it's not all about signing the big stars from other teams. Michael Conforto needs to get paid. If Noah Syndergaard comes back and performs, you have to consider paying Noah Syndergaard. So, you know, you have guys internally that need to get taken care of as well. So it can't, it's not all about adding the all-stars. It's exciting that the Mets are in play for it, though. I mean, how long has it been since the Mets, like, every time, every offseason, you and I would talk and, right. you know, you, we'd pull up MLB Trade Rumors' top 50 free agents and we'd go, like, let's skip to, like, 25, 28. Sure. That's, where the Mets will, that's where the Mets will start playing. Now they're playing right. at the top of the market, and that's exciting, but they just have to be smart about what they do. And I think it's one of Springer or Bauer. I prefer Springer personally. Um, I just think Bauer carries a lot more risk. And, and I have Joe DeMeo, that's some Mets pod, SNY.TV with me. It, it, and that's probably a realistic way they're going to go. And, and look, Bauer is playing his social media game, you know, putting the Angels ahead of Mets fans up there. I don't know if that's you know, what that end game is. If that tells you where he's leaning, he is a California guy. So keep that in mind. But if the Mets go Springer, let's put Bauer aside. I said, forget about the name for a minute. What I want is a pitcher that has a a better floor than what they went for last year. Waka was interesting, but he had a bad floor. We knew that. Porcello, I've always been eh on him. Even when he was good, I always felt eh, he's just, he's good, but he's hittable. So he's hittable, but he's in the AL East. He was a local guy. You were looking for decent innings out of him. You weren't looking for him to be Zach Wheeler. You were looking for him to be decent innings. Both of those guys gave you really bad floors. And going forward, guys like that will give you bad floors. Is Odorizzi a better floor? Is Tanaka a better floor? Uh, Paxton has an interesting floor, but he's always hurt. Where do you go? Because you start to put these guys, their names in hat, you pull them out. You've got to pull out from a a certain type of pitcher. T1 Walker, interesting name risky floor you can't go in and already you know get injuries within three four weeks in the season and be doing openers and patching things together like you were this year in let's say 144 to 162 game season in 2021 yeah no certainly as far as floor goes Masiro Tanaka has the highest floor as long as you give him his physical and his MRI and this elbow thing that's seemingly been lingering for what like six years isn't about to bust Tanaka probably has the highest floor Uh, I'm confident in Jake Odorizzi as well and certainly if you get him back with Jeremy Hefner I think that would be a really good fit he had his best year and credits Hefner with a lot of his success this year he just had a weird year he got hit in the chest by a comebacker and then had a blister and in a 60 game season there you go there there's basically your whole season uh, so I'm a big fan of his. Uh, Jared Porter actually happens to be a big fan of Taiwan Walker. So I think that is a name to watch. He was a, a big factor in the Diamondbacks trading for Taiwan Walker. But as far as if if you don't get Bauer, you're not getting, you know, that true quote unquote number two behind the ground. They're just not out there unless unless there's a creative trade for a U Darvish. I'm not sure if they even want to go that route, but if that's a possibility, that's one that could that could jump out. But otherwise, I think you're going to be going with some quantity and expect, hoping for a Marcus Stroman uh, bounce back off the opt-out. By all accounts, from everything I'm hearing, Noah Syndergaard is ahead of schedule. And, you know, he might even be back by Memorial Day. And if that's That'd the case, big. that 
that that would be huge. So I think you're, you certainly need depth. Like you said, you don't want to be going to openers. You want to have legitimate options to turn to because things naturally will go wrong in a season, even if it's a busted fingernail that puts you on the 10-day IL. You know, it just happens over a, a long season. So am I crazy comfortable with the market after Bauer? Not, not, not crazy comfortable, but I think there's guys that you can get that can certainly work. And the, the Mets need, what it comes down to is the Mets need Marcus Stroman and Noah Syndergaard in 2021 to be impactful pitchers. There's no question about it. Joe DeMeo, that's so Mets pod at some TV. Let's get to Jared Porter. So here was my thought. Uh, when we first heard the names, I even said, it's very hard to own a team or complete the transaction on November 1st get a president of baseball operations, get a GM, start signing free agents, start competing and contending because this is not a normal situation. This is not a rebuild. If it was a rebuild, it'd be different. Nobody cares about the roster. You're, you're looking long-term. This is a team that has to win now and build structure for the future. So when I said, why don't let Sandy Alderson hold, handle it? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to go after Bauer and Springer. The guy's got enough experience and he's got a, a deep pockets behind him where you could patch this together. And as I heard the names of the GMs, people used to ask me, well, who do you like? I'm like, they're all the same. You know, who, who wants to come in and take on this challenge, which was a big topic in debate about a week or so ago. Now Jared Porter emerges. And as I looked at the finalists uh, for this particular job, you had uh, uh, Billy Owens, you had Michael Hill, you had Zach Scott, Jared Porter. Porter and Billy Owens attracted me. Billy Owens had minor league experience and he came up through the A's and saw how the A's were able to do more with less, and he has a scouting background. Porter hustled his way as an intern into a scouting background, respects analytics, but understands its place. Zach Scott was coming the finance business. If you go on his LinkedIn, he came from a finance business. He's an analyst-type guy. And Michael Hill, you know, experienced guy, but not really from a winning organization, thrown out of the whole Jeter umbrella. He, he never really excited me all that much. So, when you look at what I would want, a guy with extensive scouting background, a respect for scouting, advanced look at analytics and understanding the importance of it. And here's the most important thing, Joe. The Mets are in such a similar situation as what the Red Sox were, where they have this fan base and ballpark and this cloud over the organization's head. And Theo Epstein was able to push through that. He saw firsthand what he did well, Theo Epstein, and how he built from that similar foundation. It's in a lot of ways a perfect fit. We don't know how it's going to work out, but there's a lot to like because of his background, not only with Theo, going to the Cubs, and really having the experience and the hustle of understanding the game from the Gulf Coast League all the way up to the front office of the big league club. Jared Porter is an exciting hire, and like you said, I I sort of thought Billy Owens might get it, but now looking back, it's like, well, that would have just been so painfully obvious, right? Oh, Sandy Allison worked with this guy in Oakland, and oh, he just hired him as the the Mets GM. But I give Sandy credit to where I think he's looking ahead for the Mets because he knows his time here is. He even said it. He signed on for two years, and sure. he said he said he'll see how it goes. But I imagine Sandy's going to be here for a year to two years tops, and I think Jared Porter is exactly what he was talking about when he said, I want a guy that can work within a team. Jared Poor has been doing that his entire career. He's been working, obviously, with the Red Sox, with the Cubs, and then the Diamondbacks. And he's always been a part of a group in how he worked. He's never been 
like he's obviously been the head of pro scouting, but he always brings everybody in. He is a true leader. Um, everyone, I mean, everything you see on Twitter from all these reporters, like how many times you see a GM hire get this level of universal praise and sure. you know, people saying they would run through a wall for this guy. So Jared Port is the kind of guy that I think you get him with Sandy Alderson because obviously he has great baseball acumen. He has a baseline of leadership skills. He knows scouting. He knows analytics. You get him with Sandy Alderson and Sandy could mold him into a true high-end baseball executive because there's, you know, more than just, it's not fancy baseball on steroids. So there's more to running an organization. And Sandy's look, Sandy said he was looking for a guy that can become the president of baseball operations for the Mets when Sandy's time is done. So I think Jared Porter was a very good pick and I'm pretty excited to see what, what he brings here. Cause he's made, he's been a key factor in a lot of under the radar trades for the Diamondbacks. I mean, he, he headed the deal to bring Zach Gallon to Arizona, who's been tremendous for the Diamondbacks. Sure. So I'm interested to see see where it goes with Porter, but all in all, I think the idea that people didn't want this job was a bit overblown. I think teams just, when it comes to hiring a president of baseball operations, I think they misread the market a little bit. I think they just assumed it's the Mets, it's New York, everybody in the world respects Sandy Alderson, and Steve Cohen's money comes in. Like, all right, we'll be able to get whoever we want. And they were stunned. They were stunned when they were told no by teams, or in the case of Mike Chernoff, told no by Mike Chernoff. Right. So and, and look, it's hit. it's a tough job. Yeah. Steve Phillips says this all the time on SiriusXM. I know people laugh when they hit Steve Phillips. It's a tough job. You expected to win like the Yankees in the past. You didn't have the payroll like the Yankees. Right. Um. And and the fan base is clamoring that that. And look, it's quality of life too. You know, yeah, you could live in Connecticut, you could live in 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 Westchester, you Long Island, you don't have to live in New York. But remember, like with Chris Young, family's from Texas. Why not take the job in Texas and an environment you're used to uh, versus uh, coming to New York? Now, here's one interesting thing, Joe, that he brought up on the Feinson podcast, uh, Jared Porter, and a podcast that you've put out there. And I recommend anybody who's listening to either Joe's That's So Mets pod or or this. Check it out. You get to learn a lot about Jared Porter. He talked about medical analytics being the next wave. And it's nice to hear because I think medical analytics up to a certain point has been these dopey innings limits. Oh, well, it's everybody's got to only do X number of innings and Y number of innings. And everybody, and you know this, Joe, being someone who's talked to scouts for a long time, everybody's body is different. Wheeler got hurt for one reason. Harvey got hurt for another DeGrom has stayed relatively healthy for a third. Syndergaard got hurt for a fourth. Their bodies are all different. And why pitchers don't get hurt sometimes has nothing to do with the innings. It's to do with genetics. And it'd be nice to see if they could pioneer the Mets, something in that vein, so that it could be less about these random thresholds and more about real science. Science that matters. There's nothing wrong with science, but sometimes we could use science and bastardize it just like we do with any other statistic for sure and i i like you said i love that point he made and that just shows how forward thinking he is because i don't think medical analytics is really booming in baseball right now i think you know you have some teams like the dodgers are invested in everything and i think that's what steve cohen you know he mentioned you know the dodgers are a model organization and i think he wants to certainly follow in their footsteps but 
what I like most about Jared Porter is that while a guy like Zach Scott, for example, who was the other finalist for the job, he, his, he just comes from an analytic background. So it's analytics, it's numbers. Like if you listen to him on the Find Sam podcast, you could tell you're just listening to a guy that talks about numbers and things like that. But he's Porter, a data analyst. He should be working yeah. for point seventy two for uh, for Cohen's for Cohen for Cohen's investment group. Nothing wrong with that. That's just that's not the guy I want running the team. I think that's a good yeah. number. That's a good cabinet member. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and and I think Porter's a perfect blend because I think if you are ignorant of analytics, you're going to get left behind too. And sure. I, the Mets, the Mets, it's partially the fault of the previous ownership because I think Brody. Van Wagen really did want to he tried. invest in analytics. He tried. he tried. I think I think yeah. Brody gets a bigger knock because of the Wilpons than he deserves. He was a gunslinger, but the Mets have already started to turn the corner with him in some way, shape, or form. And yeah. I think it, this draft may come to be his his legacy. If these his guys last two dra- his last two yeah. drafts, to be honest, you know, uh, I'm friends with plenty of people, obviously in the Mets scouting department, and you know, the whole plan of maybe sacrificing a little in the other rounds to get two first round talents is the kind of thing that they hadn't done before and hope to replicate. And even Sandy Alderson gave Brody credit on that strategy. He goes, you know, that's a strategy that maybe it's something, you know, we'll use going forward. So you get more quality, more quality and maybe less quantity per se. And you, you you sacrifice a little bit, but if, Matt Allen and JT Ginn are number two and number three or number four starters for an extended period of time, then it was all worth it. Sure. And Tommy, to know, uh, no, what was it? Mark Tremuda so was speaking to Keith Law, I think, uh, in June. And he said, not only that, you, you, you dismiss the college seniors, but then you get the pick of the litter of the college guys, like the yep. Jake Matt guy that you spoke to, Jake Mangum. Uh, and and that's this, that I never thought of because we all is a college senior. Well, there's baseball players. There are baseball yeah. players, you know, things like yeah. that. Joe, you wrote uh, an interesting piece over at SMY.TV about the minor leagues. And there's been a lot of talk, Kevin Kernan over at Ball 9. Everybody's railing about the minor league contraction. And I get it. You know, I, I've covered Trenton. I was heartbroken when I heard what happened to the Thunder. Uh, hopefully they land on their feet with whatever happens next. Great people. Love the bat dog. Love the atmosphere. Uh, they were great to me when I had the old NYBD site. And I used to try to get Mets and Yankees prospects. That's the closest you can get to the New York City tri-state area with that level of play. But I understand them contracting and kind of condensing the levels and then maybe doing more laboratory type of work in Port St. Lucie. Now, you talked about in your article how minor leaguers prepared in a season where it was all laboratory work at an extended camp. And to me, there's two things that come from it. Is this something that is going to work and be a component of the condensed minor leagues? Number two, how does this impact veterans who don't know when there's going to be a minor league season and may have some kind of wacky minor league season? Do they want to just bounce out and say, my career is done? And that could happen, Joe. You're 33. Look at uh, Yonder Alonso. Maybe he could have played a couple more years. Do I want a minor league contract? Jerry Blevins just signed a minor league contract. Does he want to do that knowing that he may be in Port St. Lucie doing instruct games at eight o'clock in the morning for the foreseeable future? Not everybody wants that. And then I think the third part of that is, you know, is this outrage all worth it for the minor leagues? Are we missing something? Sometimes change is hard, 
and there's a lot of bad that comes with it, but they could be good. So what did you learn? I threw a lot at you. What did you yeah. learn? Uh, and if anybody has a chance, go to SMY.TV and, and, and go to the Mets page. Not called Mets blog anymore. It's SMY.TV slash Mets. I'll call it Mets blog and, and check out what Joe had a conversation, conversation with some minor leaguers. Uh, what are your thoughts? I kind of laid out a bunch of stuff to you there. Yeah, I'll try to hit it off. But one thing that I learned from talking to a few prospects to just see is how motivated these guys were to try to take advantage of this situation. Because obviously the minor league season in itself is a big time grind. And, you know, you're taking six hour bus trips, you're not eating the greatest foods. And you know, I think a lot of people took this year as a way to refresh their bodies to deal with any nagging things that they had. Uh, some prospects took it as a time to, you know, remake their swing and their physique because now you have all the time in the world to hit the right gyms, hit the right nutrition plans and, you know, get plenty of cage time. So they worked from that perspective. Obviously there's, there's nothing like a live game action. So they, they obviously lost out on that. So there's, there, it's going to be interesting to see how 2021 goes. Like, was how are teams going to – where are they going to assign players? Are they going to assign players based on where they would have in 2020? And it's call it a year of lost development, and I'm air quoting. Or mm-hmm. do you be a little more advanced and go, all right, well, Matt Allen would have been in low A to start 2020, but he went to uh, the alternate site in Brooklyn – and he was an instructs in Port St. Lucie, and let's just send him to high A instead and, you know, take a chance and be a little more aggressive. So I guess we have to see who the new head of player development is because Jared Banner was let go, and obviously that person will have a, a big impact on, on where players are placed. But as far as the contraction goes, it's tough because, like you said, Trenton's an awesome place, and there's a lot of awesome places that lost minor league teams and that's bad for that community. And it's, it's really tough, but ultimately I think it'll end up proving better for the long term because one MLB is going to have a shorter draft going forward. There's not going to be a 40 round draft anymore. Uh, what I'm hearing is more like 20. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be slashing the amount of draft picks in half. And like you said, you can use Port St. Lucie as an extended spring training for a longer period of time and get real games in against other teams that uh, for players that didn't make full season ball. But also, it's going to lead to minor league players getting paid more money. Sure. They're still, they're still not getting paid enough. There's no question about that. But they're getting a little closer. And they've already announced uh, – I tweeted it like a month or two ago. I don't remember what the numbers are. But – depending on which level you get different pay at different level. A ball makes this double A makes this triple A makes this. And I think for some, it almost doubled what they were making before. So all in all, I think it'll, it'll prove good for the long term. It's just really tough right now. And don't forget whether it's a college bat league, independent baseball, there is a value in my opinion, instead of being held for six years in a system, and you know this better than anybody because you've spoken to a ton of minor league guys. Sometimes the difference between you making it and not making it is the organization you're in. And you've got to be there for six years. Coming out of college or 
if you don't want to go to college, you come out of high school and you go play in the Atlantic League or whatever league they set up. And the money's going to stink. It's going to be minimal. But if you can afford to do that, there's going to be opportunity for you. And maybe, just maybe, there'll be more opportunity than you think. Now, from those communities, I don't know how many people, let's get past the pandemic, are going to want to go out if Trenton is a Woodbat College Senior League. Are they going to really want to go out and see these guys? I think you have to build the ballpark experience. Were they going to that ballpark because of the Yankees? Maybe. It helped having Derek Jeter do rehab there or A-Rod do rehab there. Uh, But also I remember the Atlantic League, you know, the days when they used to bring in Carl Everett and Jose Consenco and Edgardo Alfonso, they even moved away from that. Because how much can those guys really attract other than the initial media scrutiny? So this could work out where the player has to work harder. They don't have a clear path to the big leagues. But as a mercenary, you now have 30 teams that could sign you. And I do believe unless teams really go, and they could temporarily, away from scouting, those that don't will be at those ballparks and they will be looking for diamonds in the rough. Yeah, no, there, there's going to be more opportunities. And, and you know, they want to implement an MLB draft league, which I think will be pretty interesting too, where you're going to see some draft-eligible prospects playing, you know, after their college season is over for a little bit. You won't get the, the high-end first-round picks, I'm sure. But, you know, you're going to be able to see guys at some of these, you know, sites that lost minor league teams and be able to see, you know, maybe the Mets fifth round pick one year or something like that play before he's even drafted. So that'll add some additional scouting opportunities for teams to get these guys in more live action. So ultimately, you know, it's, it's a lot of pros and cons and give and take, but ultimately I think overall it'll be better for, for the game as much as it sucks right now. You know, there's, there's an argument that minor league organizations were overcrowded and there was just, too many guys in systems that, frankly, you know, no offense, had no chance of ever making it. And I'll tell you what, I've talked to agents that have represented those guys. They've had hard conversations with those guys say, you need to get a real job. And some of them, and I get it. Look, Joe, you're only 25 once. You're only 21 once. You only have one. You only have a small window to play baseball. You can be in corporate America or retail or any of these other jobs that some of us, some of those who are listening in the audience I respect the hell out of them, and, I, I, and there's nothing wrong with them because I've done them. But you could always do those. You can't always get drafted by the New York Mets or the New York Yankees. But you also have to realize, uh, as much as you and I would love to be on uh, you know, afternoon drive time doing this show, it's not our lot in life. So you got to be with who you really are and responsibly have a situation where you make a living. And some of these guys, they were not making – they had no shot. And then you get into the working world, mid-20s, maybe 30 – you're behind everybody else. Now you're in the real world and you're making no money. And yeah. uh, look, you've got a family to raise. You've got, you know, they want to have wives and kids and barbecues and things. And I guess you'd have to question. I'm sure there's some that have questioned was baseball worth it. Now, maybe they got opportunities because of the minor league situation, but not everybody did. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I've talked to very few minor leaguers. Cause I, you know, I've talked to guys that were first round picks and guys that were 40th round picks and everything in between. And there are very few that I ever speak to that, you know, regret doing baseball. They said, you know, because you have to realize this, these, if you are to be drafted in baseball, you almost every single one of them has been playing baseball since they were four years old and they've loved it their whole lives. And that's how you, that's how you get to that level to even be drafted. 
So, you know, they don't have regrets. It's just one of those things that's just like, well, you know, I gave it a shot. And, you know, a lot of these guys just give it two years. They don't even give it that long. You know, there's one, there's one guy that I keep in touch with now here and there that was, I think a 37th round pick of the Mets and signed for a thousand dollars, made an all-star team for Brooklyn in short season ball. (laughs) And then I think I know who you're talking about. (laughs) And then then went to, went to low a the next year, hit 210 and retired. Yep. And he was a, he was a college guy. He was just like, well, uh, this isn't going to happen and moved on. Now, you know, we're Facebook friends and he's got a wife, kids, a regular old job. And, you know, people do have to move on that there's no question about that and you know that's part of the the negative though obviously will be you're not going to have those great stories of the real late round picks like the Seth Lugos 34th round sure. pick from a division two college the Grom like, things like yeah that. yeah guys yeah. like that so you'll you'll lose some stories per se but overall I think it'll lead to more of the cream of the crop being in the minor leagues rather than just having a crap load of guys that even I can't keep up with how many guys there were in the minor leagues. Sure. So Joe, what do you got coming up next? I asked you that that's so Mets pod. I'm sure there'll be more news. Jared Porter press conference, maybe a free agent signing or two. As we get into the holidays uh, at PSL to Flushing, that's so Mets pod with Connor Rogers. What does Joe DeMeo got going on? Yeah, that's so Mets pod is really my passion project right now. Uh, Connor Rogers and I, you know, we're having an absolute blast doing it. And he and does NFL stuff, Connor. He's very well known with his NFL uh, draft analysis, correct? Yeah, yeah. Connor does the NFL draft or Bleacher Report. And it's it's funny that I'm a big Cowboys fan and love the NFL draft. I would go to the NFL draft at Radio City when it was there for with my friends uh, for three or four years there. And I've, I've listened to Connor for years uh, talking about the NFL draft and, you know, he followed me for my Mets stuff. I followed him for NFL draft stuff. And then, you know, we talked over DM for probably like a year and a half. Just I'd shoot him a football question. He'd shoot me a baseball question. And then, you know, it just one day came together. He wanted to do a Mets podcast and reached out to me and we worked it out. And I'll tell you, I'm having an absolute blast doing it. Um, I love writing. I've been writing for a long time. You know that because you were one of the first people to give me an opportunity to write. Yep. uh, Yep. Back with the NYBD days. So I I love writing and SNY TV. You certainly can find all my work where I'm mostly prospect stuff, but you'll see the occasional piece about the big league team. But primarily I'm I'm covering the minor leagues for SNY. Long way from New York sports fans and going into those uh, Mets fan forums. (laughs) You bring it back. When you said the 05 Mets, it started coming back to me. It's amazing. Twitter is now that that thing. So, oh, great stuff. Well, Joe, you're always a good friend. You got your own podcast, but you never forget the little guys like me. Uh, Let's have some fun. Do this again. It's fun. It's nice talking about something other than just the draft. You and I always talk about the draft. Now we can talk about some real meat and potato stuff. It's not just things that are going to happen five years from now. So (laughs) let's do it again. Be well. Happy holidays. Stay safe. And uh, thank you, my friend. You got it, Mike. Anytime. That's Joe DeMeo. You can check him out at That's So Mets Pod. And, uh, you know, Joe does some really, really good work with Connor Rogers at PSL to Flushing at that So Mets pod with Connor Rogers on Twitter. All right, let's take a quick break. Longer show. I hope you enjoy it. A lot to get into. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with final thoughts right after this. 
The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, final thoughts. Uh, great stuff from Joe DeMeo. I really enjoyed it. I know that this program's gone a lot longer than normal, but lots to get into. Big day uh, from a hot stove perspective for the Mets in the front office, for the Mets on the field. And uh, we got into a little bit about the minor leagues. We had a lot to talk about. I could have went on forever with Joe, but... Anyway, you know where to check him out uh, at that so Mets pod at PSL to Flushing, Joe DeMeo, Connor Rogers. A uh, little pop here for something funny. I, I don't know if everybody thinks it's funny, but and, and it's not an inappropriate thing. But if you want to put earmuffs on, because I'll use uh, one of those words that you know maybe are on the borderline of G rated or whatever it may be. But there's this account on Twitter called Mets underscore Shitter, and every year they do the worst. Twitter accounts, and I guess they have a truncated version of the NCAA tournament-style Mets-Shitter tournament this year with only, what, 14 participants, is it? or eight part? No, eight participants. And I guess I was one of the, again, for the second or third year in a row, I was one of the eight uh, nominated. There was some kind of play-in tournament. So if you want to go to Twitter, at under, Mets underscore Shitter, you'll get to vote for me if you think I stink. So anyway, I, I give those things a plug because I think they're funny. I know some people don't like the fact that they think it's mean-spirited. Anybody giving me attention and has uh, the time to go screenshot old tweets, I, I'm flattered by it. But uh, I know some people don't like it. But I thought anyway it'd be something funny. Passes the time. And uh, who knows? It gets some publicity for the show. I know we've gotten a few new uh, followers from it. So I can't complain. No publicity is bad publicity. But Anyway, um, you know, so that's it. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more news. Um, it just came down. The Mets just hired a new bench coach, Dave Jouse. I think that's how you say his name, Jouse. So I don't know if we really want to get too much into that. But uh, I thought we had a, a fun, riveting show, and, and there'll be more to come. We'll keep an eye on the free agent market. The Mets have a new GM. I'm sure they'll be introducing Jared Porter sometime this week. I'm sure we'll get more into that. And uh, and away you go. But uh, again, I want to thank Joe DeMeo for joining us. Of course, you could check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media and Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Get me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast very soon. Till then, take care, everybody.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.